This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, diplomacy in the cyber age, defending an open and free internet overseas with the State Department's new Cyberspace Bureau, and how the war in Ukraine could fundamentally shift U.S. foreign policy and relations with Europe. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Pursuing American diplomacy in a more contested and competitive world requires a fresh look at some modern problems. As part of his modernization agenda, Secretary of State Blinken recently announced the creation of a new Cyberspace and Digital Policy Bureau. The leader of that organization is the senior bureau official and principal deputy assistant secretary, Jennifer Backus. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. All right, so what's the role the State Department plays in cyber and digital policy? So for many years now, the State Department has had two different offices that have operated in this environment. Uh, particularly, it was the coordinator for cyberspace, cybersecurity issues, and the Economic Bureau, which focused on digital policy. So for many years, we've had experts that have been working independently on these issues. This new bureau is bringing together those two elements, as well as the human rights aspects of cyberspace, in order to uh, put forward a holistic view of these issues that look at the national security, economic policy, and human rights components of cyberspace. So there are other agencies and organizations within the government that are looking at these issues. Who are you working with and how do you coordinate with them? So yes, there's many people in the U.S. government looking at this, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland uh, Security, the National Security Council, Department of Commerce, I could go on and on, of course. And of course, we all get together and try to discuss what's the best policy that looks at this in a holistic manner. There's also a domestic component as well, but we are focused on the international uh, diplomacy component of it. You said that there's a human rights component. What does that mean? What kind of human rights are involved in cyberspace and digital policy? So we think that what we, what we want is an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable internet. What that means is we believe that it is a right that every person on the planet should be able to access information through the internet. And so what that means is you're looking at questions like internet shutdowns, which we've seen around the world, restricting access to information, and trying to make sure that our policy is promoting this vision that would allow uh, every person, regardless of where they're located, to access information. What is digital diplomacy? How are you defining that? Well, again, it's to bring together these three components. So you have to look at whether it's the national security elements, which would be making sure that our critical infrastructure is protected and those of our allies and partners as well. Uh, on the economic side, it's the are U.S. businesses able to uh, compete in a fair, transparent manner around the world? And then again, we talked about the human rights. I'd also note that uh, we do a um, some foreign assistance. So, again, working with our allies and partners to make sure that they have uh, good cybersecurity tools or working with those countries in lesser developed areas to make sure that they have, uh, that they can access the internet, that their people have good internet infrastructure. So Secretary of State Blinken has said this. He said, 
quote, we're in a contest over the rules, infrastructure, and standards that will define, that will define our digital future. A contest with whom? Well, I think there are competing visions of what the internet should look like going forward. Uh, in talking to some uh, various companies involved in this, I've used, I've heard the term splinternet. Now, that's not a term that I would personally subscribe to, but it's the question of how is the internet going to look going forward? Are we going to have this vision that's been projected? Will every person around the world be able to access information in a transparent, open manner? Or will governments determine what you can look at and how you can access the internet? So your bureau includes three policy units. Yes. Um, the International Cyberspace Security, International Information and Communications Policy, and Digital Freedom. So let's talk about that first one, which is um, the, the international cyberspace security. Why is the State Department involved in cybersecurity to begin with? Well, there are two aspects of this. And again, to, to note that this is an issue that the State Department has been involved in for decades. We've been working in the international community in the multilateral sphere to make sure that the standards that are adopted are ones that protect us and our infrastructure as well as those of our allies. That the norms that are being adopted uh, allow people to be able to access the internet safely. So what we're doing is a couple of things. First of all, we're working with our partners and allies on capacity building. We're also setting up a framework, and we have set up a framework uh, in the UN to establish rules of the road on cybersecurity. I think we all have seen over the last few years what happens when we don't have good cybersecurity, that other countries do ransomware attacks, that they attack our, attack our critical infrastructure. And so we don't need to go at this alone. We can go at this in collaboration and coordination with our partners. Well, I mean, you can make a framework all you want, right? And, and you can talk about responsible state behavior in cyberspace, but you can't enforce it. Well, of course, this is an issue, but the president has very clearly stated that he reserves the right to respond in a reciprocal and appropriate manner as he sees. So there is, has been examples over the last few years when we've seen attacks and the president has very clearly responded to those attacks. And again, this requires coordination and collaboration with our allies and partners on things like attributions, on calling out those who are doing the malign behavior and then implementing sanctions. And of course, it's not just us in the State Department, this is in coordination with Department of Treasury, with Department of Homeland Security, and again, with uh, those other countries that want to join us in sanctioning those malign actors. Okay, Jennifer, we're gonna take a quick pause here and then we'll talk about the other units. Great, thank you. Coming next, I'll continue my conversation with Jennifer Backus, the head of the State Department's new Cybersecurity, Cyberspace, and Digital Policy Bureau. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're talking with Jennifer Backus. She's the Senior Bureau Official and Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the State Department's Cyberspace and Digital Policy Bureau. Jennifer, the second policy unit of the Bureau is uh, International Information and Communications Policy. What will that focus on? Well, that's where we look at uh, the economic and commercial diplomacy aspects of cyber 
uh, cyberspace. Specifically, uh, for example, we just negotiated a couple of weeks ago a deal with the European Union to ensure that there continue to be the free flow of data between the United States and the European Union. The European Union had some concerns over privacy. We had to go and negotiate a framework in which our companies could continue to compete. Uh, this is just one example of the many aspects of digital policy that we have to look at that make sure that American companies can be present in this market, that we can uh, create jobs and we can be competitive on the world stage, and that there aren't barriers to our companies. Uh, we also look at things like 5G networks and who is selling to those networks, how are those networks being built out, are American companies competing? Are untrusted vendors competing? So it's a very broad range of things that we're looking at. I should actually, before I move on, mention the International Telecommunications Unit Union, which is also something that we negotiate in, again, to get back to that question of standards and norm setting. And this unit looks at that as well. And the unit is, uh, the last one is digital freedom. And you really talked about that, about free and open access to, yes. the, to the internet. Talk a little bit about the process of setting up this bureau and building out the team. Well, this has been a long time in the making. Again, these are separate units that existed already in the State Department. So there was an idea to bring them together under one uh, chapeau. Uh, this was, again, as you mentioned, one of Secretary Blinken's very high priorities in his modernization agenda. So they looked at what would make the most sense, what would make us most effective on the international stage to, again, promote our vision of the internet, this open, interoperable, reliable, and secure internet. So after many months and years of studying the issue, what Secretary Blinken decided in consultation with the private sector, Congress, other US government agencies, was to set up this bureau, the Cyberspace and Digital Policy Bureau. And so they took two units that already existed. They added the Digital Freedom Unit, as well as, of course, a front office, strategic planning, and the other elements that really create a bureau. So we have about 60 staff already, and we will be hiring about 30 more over the course of the coming year. And OK, so total, you're going to have about 90 people? 90 to 100, yes. And how big is the budget? Uh, so we have both a foreign assistance budget as well as our operations budget. Our operations budget is about $20 million, and our foreign assistance budget is $37 million. This is, of course, in the president's proposal. We have to see what Congress will do. As is always the question, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, Russia is known for malicious cyber uh, activity, and I wonder what you've seen so far in the Ukraine war regarding that and the other issues that you really look at in the Bureau? Well, it's, again, an interesting example of bringing all of our policy units together. Of course, Russia has had cyber uh, attacks on Ukraine, on its banking sector, uh, and they actually tried a few others, as I think was discussed in the last couple of weeks. Um, there's also been concern about Russian attacks onto U.S. and ally critical infrastructure. So we're hardening our defenses. We're working together to make sure that we have early warning systems so that we can, again, make sure that uh, they don't take down our critical infrastructure. Uh, on the economic component, the commercial one, we need to make sure that the Ukrainians continue to have access to Internet, that they're not, that their Internet is not taken offline. We've seen that repeatedly, all the work that's been going on to make sure. And then finally, on the human rights component, we have to look at what's going on in Russia in terms of limiting the access to information uh, so that Russians don't 
know what is really going on on the ground in Ukraine, which is, of course, should be a concern to all of us. You know, interestingly, I mean, we thought that the Ukrainians would be offline by this point, and they're not. Don't you find that strange? I mean, it's good. <laughs> well, I think that it demonstrates that if we work together with our partners and allies, if we help shore up their cybersecurity, if we try to anticipate what could happen, that we can be effective in counteracting and combating uh, Russian malign influence. But this is this just shows the importance of the work that this bureau is doing and that the work that the people, the experts that have worked on these issues for so many years, how effective they have been. And I think that bringing these elements together will just be more effective going forward. You know, you're a career diplomat. You um, were previously the deputy chief um, of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Prague. I wonder about you personally and your transition into this new role. Well, I will say that I was beyond honored when the secretary and the deputy secretary asked me to take on this role. It's an issue that I believe deeply in. I do think that this affects how the world will operate going forward and that the U.S. vision is one that I want to help participate in promoting. I've been doing diplomacy my entire career. This is all I've done. And for me, I think the U.S. has a vision of the world and I want, and I think, a vision that is positive and forward-looking. And I think that being in this role, I can help us make sure that going forward, this vision is, is the one that takes root on the internet. The internet's existed for many years, but this battle is not over and we need to have effective diplomacy. So I was beyond happy when they asked me to take this role. I should also say I've worked in multiple countries, including the Czech Republic, which are very active on these issues. And so it did give me the background and the understanding of how to cooperate with our friends, our partners, our allies around the world to promote this vision. All right, well, Jennifer, best of luck to you. And thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, more Government Matters after the break. Stay with us. Russia's war on Ukraine is the first all-out war of aggression in Europe since 1945. And until recently, U.S. foreign policy has been primarily focused on China and the Indo-Pacific. So how will U.S. foreign and security policy change as a result of this war? Anne-Marie Slaughter is the former director of policy planning at the State Department. She's currently the president and CEO of New America. Anne-Marie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So I want to start with those high-level visits to Ukraine from U.S. government officials. Most recently, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, last month Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State. Are these visits just photo ops, or will they have an impact on the war? Well, they are aimed at demonstrating to Russia that this is our war, too that we are not going to fight directly on the ground. We, NATO, the United States, is, uh, will not fight directly on the ground and come into direct conflict with Russian troops, but that it is our war and we're not going to just move on. Because you said going in, this is the first all-out war of aggression in Europe since uh, 1945. That's right, 
But in 2014, the same thing happened. Uh, Russia took Crimea and occupied parts of eastern Ukraine, and the world moved on. What these visits are designed to do is to say to Russia, we're not moving on. Speaker Pelosi told President Zelensky, quote, our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is, is done. Do you think there is more the U.S. can do to help the Ukrainians? I think the United States is doing what it can, and indeed 33 billion of additional arms may be more than we need. I do think it is essential to continue supporting Ukraine, above all to prevent Russia from taking over southern Ukraine and, and the port of Odessa. If Russia can do that, then Russia will control global wheat prices in addition to playing a large role in global oil prices. The world will suffer, and there will be the message then that Russia can continue to nibble away, say, at Moldova next. So how do you think this war has reshaped the global wor world order, or is it too early to tell? So, Mimi, it is too early to tell, very much so. I think President Biden sees this as the world's democracies lining up against the autocracies, and Russia is there next to China. Uh, and Iran and the other autocracies, and that this really is like the 20th century where, you know, a win for us is a loss for them. I don't think that's right. I actually am, look, if you, I think if you look at the ways in which the world is responding on things like the vote to expel Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, what you see is the BRICs are abstaining or voting against, Russia or China voted against, but Brazil, India, Mexico, Indonesia, Egypt, South Africa, all these countries are basically saying, this is not our priority. We have other issues that we have to address. And our global order is no longer going to be divided along the lines of East versus West. So how would you rate the Biden administration's diplomatic handling of this conflict? I think the administration has really done a, a an excellent job, really a superb job in many ways. The one place I will fault President Biden is personalizing this against President Putin. If we are going to get any kind of deal, and by that I mean really a ceasefire, you get the, you get the military situation to a place where Russia cannot say it's one, or it can say it's one to its own people, but not to, to the world, uh, and then you have to have, have a long series of diplomatic negotiations. By telling Putin that he's a war criminal who is going to be sent to The Hague uh, and otherwise uh, really banished uh, from, from the world, you give him no incentive to even reach that ceasefire. Do you think that European countries now see the value of their relationship with the U.S. in different terms now as a result of this war? I think Europe is going through a lot of reassessment of its own security. But I actually think Europe is still very focused on Donald Trump's professed desire to get rid of NATO. He obviously did not act on it. Uh, but he and his supporters, who are still a very powerful force in U.S. politics, uh, as we'll see in the midterms and in 2024, uh, really frightened Europe uh, in ways that mean that Europe is thinking much harder about how to provide for its own security. 
Uh, it is Germany's increasing defense spending, not because the United States asked it to, but because Germany is now saying, you know, if the U.S. isn't there and we can't count on the U.S. forever, we can on Biden, but that's not the United States, then we need to reconfigure. Do you fault the administration for making the U.S.-China rivalry really the focal point of its security policy? I don't agree with making China the focal point of our security policy. I, again, think that the biggest threats we face are global. The things that I worry about for my children and for this country and for the world are whether we're going to have a livable planet, whether we are going to be able to prevent uh, and address future pandemics because they are coming, whether we're going to have to be safe in the digital world, which is where more and more of us live. Those are all issues where we actually need to cooperate with other nations on climate change. If we're not cooperating with China, we will simply not achieve the goals we need to. So rather than thinking of the world in terms of autocracies versus democracies or two great superpowers, China and the United States, I'd like us to be thinking about how do we forge the global coalitions to keep us all safe and prosperous. All right. Well, Anne-Marie, nice talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Mimi, thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
we use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.